Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whose whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years long, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden, it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched on its branches. Again he said, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about six pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Some asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and you taught us in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you came from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping, there will be gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but, your, but you yourselves thrown out. <coughs> People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, who will be first, and first who will be last. Um, I've really enjoyed my time here. Thank you for being so uh, appreciative. Uh, it's made my time a joy. It's a wonderful thing to observe. So revival, uh, working as a community and um, I'm very thankful for all that all of you and the church and the work that's been done under God's gracious hand and I continue to commit my way to you in prayer and I thank you for Stu inviting me and allowing me to come back after missing last year and uh, it's been a real privilege to be here. So we want to finish off by looking at this part of God's word. Um, if you follow through, we've been on a journey to Jerusalem. We won't get to Jerusalem, I'm sorry. You would have noticed 13 is a long way short. We could have gone for another uh, lot of uh, six talks to get all the way there. We looked at what it means to follow as a disciple. We looked at the cost of what it means to live as a disciple. We looked at the nature of mercy being a requirement for those who are going to walk with Jesus as disciple. We saw the nature of prayer as an instinctive, important response, uh, relying upon God in all that we do. And yesterday, we looked at the place of wealth and possessions and money for those who are going to be disciples, so that's a very important area. 
I want to finish this little journey with what seems initially to be quite an innocuous little story. Uh, it's not really a significant great moment. Uh, at one level, it's very straightforward. Uh, I want to pick up at 13.10, verse 10, uh, where we're going to land and go through these verses. <clears throat> On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. Uh, this is where we want to finish our time. Uh, it's a bit of a surprise, actually, I want to say up front, that he's teaching in the synagogues. Uh, the f there's only three times in uh, Luke's Gospel he teaches the synagogue. First time was Luke 4, where he gave what I call the inauguration address. This is his launching address about what it means to be a disciple in his hometown in Nazareth. And you remember how well it went? How well did it go? Didn't go very well. Didn't like him and it drove him out of town. The next one, Luke 6, he teaches in the synagogues. And again, the Pharisees and others heard him and they were so troubled by his teaching and what he was doing. He healed on the Sabbath. That that was a moment where they decided they need to do something with him. In other words, that was a moment the coalition, coalition of forces against Jesus started to come together and eventually take his life. Um, and more than that, it surprises in the synagogue because the, he's consistently harshest in his criticism against the leaders. Uh, we used the picture of Jesus being this very tender, compassionate man and who he is, indeed he is, but boy, he says some harsh things against those who are religious leaders of the day. Go back to chapter 11, if you've got your Bibles there. <clears throat> 1137 to 53. Woe to the Pharisee. He keeps on saying, Woe to you Pharisees because you give birth. Woe to you Pharisees because you love the most important seats. Woe to you because you like unmarked graves. Uh, woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets. Woe to you experts of the law. There's woe, woe, woe. These are woeful people, full of woe. And he might be nice and kind and generous and compassionate to those who are the outsiders, but he really doesn't like the way that the leadership of, the church, of Israel has gone. And so it's a surprise he's once again back in the synagogue. And I want to say there's a significant moment occurring here that he's actually back in the synagogue. And I want to initially just help us reflect about this place of what he initially said in the synagogue back in chapter 4. It should have been, Home down, hometown boy does good, you know, but he's been out of the town. But in the chapter, we read what he does about the program he's about to commence. He gets the Bible, or the scroll, and he reads these words. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. We'll come back to the significance of that. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. It would have been at some sort of moment. Everyone's watching intently. He began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So here is his programmatic moment. He is deliberately taking this part of the Bible and saying, this defines the nature of my ministry as it's going forward. 
here is a way to help you understand. And the heart of it is saying, the moment of God's favour to you has arrived. Now, where's that come from? In the Old Testament, there was an event that took place once every 50 years. Anyone know what the name of that one in 50 year event was called? <coughs> Jubilee. There'd be seven lots of seven, but once every 50 years, there'd be a moment of Jubilee. It's a moment of release, a moment where the society would be put back. Now, many of you play golf? Any golfers here? Gosh, what sort of group are you? <laughs> no golfers here. That's a very, very sad thing. I do need to pray for you gently. Too busy serving, mate. I like golf. I've got a golf story. I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you a surfing story or a cycling story. I'll give you a golf story. In golf, there's a thing called a mulligan. Ever heard of the word mulligan? Uh, mulligan is where you make a mess of a shot and you say, oh, that doesn't count. And you put another ball down and you hit that one. And you say, that one counts. Um, and you pretend the first one never occurred. And just write it from your mind. Everyone just pretends it didn't occur. Uh, by the way, Donald Trump was famous for taking mulligans. <laughs> you didn't know that. Uh, some people call it cheating. I, I don't. I call it making fun of golf. Because I just said, oh, how did you go that hole? I got a par. No, you didn't. You had five mulligans. Oh, they don't count. You know? It's all good. Now, mulligans in golf is one thing, isn't it? It's oh, who really cares? Professional sport. Don't want to talk about that. But we do like the idea of a redo. Ever thought of what it's like to be, have a life director? You know, like movie directors, they're looking at a scene and the director says, cut, 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 cut. This is not working. We need to go back from the beginning. Wouldn't it be great if there was someone available observing your life and they simply said, stop, stop. This is just simply not working. Where you're going with this is just going to be really terrible. Let's go back and start from the beginning again and give you a redo. Now, we don't have that, but that would be lovely, wouldn't it? Someone come along and said, okay, it's not working out here. There's all sorts of, you know, this is, a, this is our life. There's mistakes accumulate. Errors pile up. Judgments that are out of place. And just our life just accumulates all these things. And you do often think, if only I could have gone back and started again. Well, that's what the Jubilee is. It's a moment where Israel, who accumulates all these things that are just taking their lives out, let's go back and have a fresh start, a new beginning. And so Leviticus 25 speaks about this jubilee, and it has to wait a long time. 50 years is a long time to wait, isn't it? For Stu Crawshaw, it's nothing. He's well over 50 now. But for us, very few of us over 50, that's a long time. But once every 50 years, the whole of Israel has a redo moment. It's about people who stuffed up their lives, made mistakes, particularly lost the land, and losing the land because of errors that you had made was a significant thing. If you didn't have land, you had no stability, and the land was part of the blessing of God. But everything returned back to where it was, back at the beginning. 
This is a, a whole Luke 25. We haven't got time to read it if you want to look at later on. But the main idea was that the situation you're in was reversed and you were restored back to where you were. And people could look forward to that moment. So what's Jesus doing in Nazareth when he quotes Isaiah 61, which is quoting Leviticus 25? He's saying, in my life and ministry, this moment is being fulfilled that the Jubilee anticipated and the ultimate final time of restoration is now here for everyone. People are going to have a time where freedom can be gained, recovery can be found, release is yours, restoration is going to be available. Wherever your life's got to, there's going to be a new thing over here. And that's what he declares. It's restoration time in his life. And so we go back to Luke 13 and the nobodies got calls. In other words, it's mulligan time. And this is very good news indeed. God coming to anoint, uh, uh, Jesus coming in his anointed ministry to declare restoration time. And do you notice who the restoration time is for? He says it's for the poor. And I just want to land on this question of who the poor is in Luke. Who are these poor? Because I want to say the lady who is healed here, uh, she's a, a lady, lady crippled for 18 years, bent over, could not straighten up, is an example of the poor. Now, sometimes you've been around Christian circles, perhaps, where we've heard that God preferences the poor over everyone else in society. And we think it's to do with monetary uh, life more than anything else. In other words, God favours you based on your bank balance. And we instinctively say, well, that can't quite be right, can it? So who are the poor? The poor are those who put their hand up and cry out to God, realising they need his help. They need release. They need recovery. They are, know that they're in an inferior position and they need God to come and help them. They are who the poor are. Uh, the poor could indeed be people who are those who don't have much, but it's not necessarily only the economically poor. It's the, often the socially downtrodden. It's the godly people who know their lives are low. It's the humble you think about it, why that would be. If I'm proud and I think I'm somebody and I think I've got what I need, are you going to be crying out to God for restoration? By very nature, my picture of myself precludes my capacity to call upon God. Now that's, by the way, last yesterday's talk on wealth and possessions is so important. They're the greatest deception to think I can be a somebody, isn't it? I can configure my life to be who I want to be. And that's where God is no longer required. And I do, it's not just then eco economically rich, I'm in poverty towards God. It's a great deception <clears throat> that somehow I can make my life work, which is not possible. So the, for Luke, the poor are the outsiders of society religious society especially. That's why Jesus would consistently 
consistently always seem to be antagonistic, if I can use that word, towards the religious leaders, because they thought they were somebody. They thought they were good and okay. But he always seemed to move towards the marginalised, the excluded. Why, why, who did Jesus have a reputation of hanging around with most of all? Remember? Name them. Tax collectors, prostitutes and sinners. That's his go-to group. They're the people, and sort of thing. That's an extraordinary picture of who Jesus preferences. And why does he preference them? Because they know their situation is in need. And now we come across a lady who is exactly in this situation in Luke 13. So go back to Luke 13 now, if you've got your Bibles there. And we'll start at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching one of the synagogues. Again, our eyes were alerted. I've just told you the fact that he's in a synagogue on a Sabbath, we should go, ah, something's happening here. And a woman was, who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over, could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put a hand on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. This woman, I want to say, is an inconsequential nobody. I want to, you say, everyone passed her by. No one saw her. She was a nobody in that society and a nobody at the synagogue. She was disfigured. She wouldn't have been attractive to look at. People would have averted their eyes. But guess who saw her? Jesus saw her. It's a lonely place. I know what all of your lives are like. To feel like I'm somebody that no one sees. Ever what it was like to be someone that no one ever notices? No one ever takes any attention to? Well, I want to tell you, if you ever feel like that, don't ever uh, forget that Jesus sees you. He always sees you. And he's moved in love towards you. you ne no one's a nobody in Jesus' world. So Jesus wants to, us to see her for who she is. And so when he says, woman, you are set free from your infirmity, this is the inauguration of this restoration time. This is a, an example of the jubilee playing out. This is an example of freedom for the poor, the release of those who are caught in, um, in prison, if you like. This is good news. And we see in the woman something much more. He says in verse 16, uh, Should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from what bound her? I want you to know something significant here. She's called a daughter of Abraham, but at the same time she's been in bondage to Satan. She's a daughter of Abraham kept in bondage to Satan. I say this because we get confused by the nature of satanic work and demonic work and bondage and what it looks like. She's a daughter of Abraham, but in bondage to Satan. What's happening to the woman is not clearly that she's demon-possessed. I want to make that clear. She's not demon-possessed, but Jesus sees the bondage she is in, bent over and crippled, 
as being a consequence of a world that's not right because of the dominion of Satan. Satan has the control of the world and tries to keep people in bondage, and the bondage expresses itself in different ways. So the woman's condition, I want to make very clear, is not because she's sinful, but she's in a world of sin, in bondage to sin because of a world under the control of Satan, and Jesus come to release her from that bondage and free her from that terrible infirmity and restore her to what she should be and what she will be for eternity. He's overturning the ravages of a fallen world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about Satan being the god of this age. So her condition is she's not right. Satan is having his way and she needs to be released from that, from the bondage of Satan. The king of this world, that is Jesus, is now overturning the prince of this world, who is Satan. And the final defeat of Satan is going to be accomplished on the death of Jesus on the cross. But we still need to remind ourselves, we live in a world where Satan's still trying to have his way, keep people crushed and belt down, and the activity of the Gospels keep on releasing people from that bondage and to be restored to where they should be. And so she is freed and she's the torture of her infirmity and is released, but she's also released from Satan's dominion. And rest- restoration has come, in this case, to a nobody. An absolute nobody. No one knows her. And I want to say it's wonderful. The religious leaders, however, did not like that. We pick up from where our Bible reading was in verse 14. So they saw all this. See this woman who's been crippled for 18 years. Everyone knew where she was. Jesus speaks to her. And you would think, what's the instinctive response? You see someone restored to health. This is a good thing. No, not for the religious leaders of the synagogue. Verse 14. Indignant. That's not captured there. Sort of, this is hot with anger. Indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those six days, not on the Sabbath. Now the religious leader was blind and lost all sight of what mattered. And what matters is people. They had lost the capacity for relationships to people and instead had, had developed a relationship to rules. Rules defined everything in their life, and the capacity to move, move what we saw the fir- on the third talk in mercy toward the others had been lost. We know the language that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. Well, they had skewed that whole understanding of the summary of the law to this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your donkey as yourself. They would free an ox or a donkey, but quite happily leave a crippled nobody infirmed on the Sabbath day. Which is extraordinary. Then we move to 18 to 21 and the parable of the great banquet. This is still continuing the explanation of what it means to be 
restore, restoring people into the kingdom. 18 to 21. Uh, Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed. He's, he's just given an example of something small, inconsequential. There's just been an infirm woman that no one saw, restored. Well, that's what the kingdom is like, God is like. Which man took and planted in a garden, it grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches? And again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed, just a tiny, tiny bit of yeast, inconsequential nothing, and put in 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way through the dough. This is what the kingdom work is always like. It continues to be like. It's in the small, it's in the inconsequential. And the cumulative impact of working in the small and inconsequential is extraordinary. So who are the small and inconsequential? It's a single mother overwhelmed by trying to deal with children in her life, and life is just too much. It's those who are brought low by illness of age, or sickness, or accidents, as we've heard. It's the ordinary, unnoticed people simply getting on with their life, but they know they need forgiveness and freedom, and they're found in God. The inconsequential are those dealing with the loneliness and anxiety of life, yet knowing God, they've got someone who's with them all the way through. And this is where we find God's work mainly still in the world. It's in the mundane and ordinary folk of the world. It's those who are easily overlooked. It's not always the consequential and the extraordinary where God is there. So by that I mean, here is the most extraordinary thing that's ever opened up in the world. Here is God's Son coming with all his glory to the world. It's the most massive, significant thing ever happened. And you think if he's going to come... It's going to be displayed amongst the people who are connected. It's going to be displayed amongst the privileged and the powerful. It's going to come with fanfare and notice. It's going to be placarded everywhere. But the only place that's picked up is a crippled woman bent over for 18 years. It's the nobodies who don't have anything else to claim in their lives. It's not the powerful that see all this. It's the unknown. This is why the kingdom of God keeps on subverting normal expectations. If I may, when you meet at your congregations, whether at Kiriwi or Riot or Yarrawarra or Cronulla, if I missed anywhere, everyone drives pie. It doesn't, can I say, you think you're something, the world thinks you're nothing. It's inconsequential. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't look like it's anything significant at all, does it? But that's the way of God. That's the way of the kingdom always. It's the most important fundamental thing our world needs to see. But God's infinite wisdom is displayed in the ordinary, the insignificant. That's why, if I may, I've always been a little bit troubled by celebrity testimonies. I know they're important, getting the powerful up, telling their stories, but I'd rather hear someone who's had a bike accident and, and just, I mean, aeronautical engineer. They're nobodies, aren't they? Uh, 
I'm not sure we always gain a lot of standing by getting the powerful up to say, look, something happened. I think we always have to preference saying that ordinary people where something's happened is just as significant. There's a church in Sydney, I will name Nameless, and there's, you know how the old churches used to have plaques up? And everyone can have their plaque put up. There's a particular church, I'll change the name of the plaque. But all up, all you see in the plaque is Bob Jones, faithfully taught Sunday school, 1922 to 1948. So 26 years. That's all you know about Bob Jones. But what's unknown about Bob Jones was he actually was a very successful businessman. They had a lot of money, had a successful life. But what was recorded on the little thing on the wall was Bob Jones, Sunday school teacher, 22 to 48. And we say, well, what's the most important thing? Oh, we want to know about the money he made, the business he started. But that's not God's way. It's insignificant, inconsequential. And for those who do kids' ministry, this is for Tim Bill Hunts, <laughs> might seem like it's inconsequential nothing. But in God's providence, God's wisdom, it's how the kingdom works. And the things that don't seem to matter. And by the way, if I may again, it's why politics to me is second towards what's happening in the church. Don't think the answer of the world is going to come from politics. It's going to come from the work that God's doing and punch the inconsequential nobodies that accumulate and the mustard seed grows into a big church. So here is mulligan time, restoration time for the world. <clears throat> but it raises a very significant question that picks up in verse 22. Uh, it says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? This is still working out the question. Okay, If God's working through the nobodies between the hunched over 18 uh, women who's been like that for 18 years, if that's where God's working, well, is that going to be a, a bit of a nothing? Is actually going to be many people... So if that's what God's way is, the consequence of that is going to be not many people. If Jesus' happening, if Jesus' kingdom's happening without fanfare, unnoticed, inconsequential, will it be very few who are saved? And it's a very straightforward question, isn't it? Because of my strategy, if I was going to make a big noise, I'd make it up with the big people. God's strategy is with the little people. Well, how many will actually be saved? Now, as often is the case with Jesus, he doesn't appear to answer it. So I'll read verses 24 to 29 and see how this answers the question, right? The question is, well, if God works for the nobodies, how many people will be saved? He replies this. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try and enter to not be able to, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know who you are, know you or where you are come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you 
or where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. And there'll be weeping, and there'll be gnashing of teeth, when you can see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, and will take their place in the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are last will be first, and the first will be last. This long section answers the question, are there a few saved? And so the question is, what's he saying? You're asking for questions about the future. I want you to answer the question about where you are now. So they're saying, oh, what's it going to look like in the future? And Jesus said, don't worry about that. I want you to ask the question, where are you standing right now as you speak to me? The curiosity and speculation what things will look like is a bit of a furphy. My fundamental question is, what are you doing with me right now? What are you doing in relationship to the gate in front of your eyes right now? What is the future? Well, make a decision now for yourself. Will lots of people involved? Let God look after that. Where are you at this moment in time as you deal with me? The invitation is for, for you. Do not presume on your status as an insider. But work hard to be those who are inside by coming to me. Indeed, those who are far off in the end I look closer than you realise. In my mind, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be surprised by those. I don't think heaven's like this, right? So this is just my imagination. I think there'll be all these people, here's Jesus, and there are all these people close to him who I've disregarded or didn't think were significant. And all the people I thought might have been significant might be further away. Because they have been faithful in what they did and lived their lives and are rewarded because of that. One of the saddest things happened to my ministry life. I had a particular person at a church at Glenmore Park who came to me and said, look, I've got to leave the church. Why? Well, it's not spiritual enough for me. Uh, the people here seem to be very ordinary. <laughs> I, use, I, I seem to be very ordinary. I need, a, I need to belong to a church where I feel spiritually alive and spiritually charged. And I gave the example of a girl, lady in our church called Lynn, who was just the most marvellous lady. Served her heart out. Always served her heart with people in mind. And I said to him, well, what about Lynn? Oh, she's a nobody. She doesn't matter. I want people who matter. In my mind, when you get to heaven, Lynn will be close. And the people have a view of themselves that they're superior or better, be further back. So the point here is make a decision now. Don't make decisions on the speculation of the future. You have Jesus in front of you right now. Make a decision to follow him now. Make a decision to be his disciple now. And don't think of it any other way. So mulligan time is here. <laughs> mulligan time is here. Restoration time is here. 
And we now have that opportunity to share that globally and widely and everyone. We display in our lives with thanksgiving all that we have. We're thankful for God's provision in providing to us the capacity to belong to his kingdom. We rejoice in the Saviour. We are freed from Satan's bondage. We're part of a feast that never ends. And Jesus provides for us more greatly and more wondrously than we could ever imagine. And so we follow him with all our heart and mind and soul. We live as disciples, determined to be those who build his kingdom with a mustard tree bigger than we could ever imagine. And though we might only see one thing happening small step by step, the cumulative impact is bigger than we could ever imagine. Thank you for allowing me to be with you over the last few little while. I pray for God's blessing upon you as you return to your various responsibilities and as you continue to serve Soul Revival Church over the years to come. Amen.